Morning, church. We're going to spend our time this morning in Psalm 96 for the sermon. But before we do, let's go to the Lord's word, or let's go to before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are here to confess this morning that every square inch of creation belongs to you. You're the rightful king. You're the righteous judge. And you sent your son to rescue your people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus, you died for the nations. And you deserve the praise of all nations. And I pray that this morning as we consider your word in Psalm 96, that you would strengthen our hearts with boldness and with urgency. We look to you. Spirit, we pray that you would lift up Christ in our midst, that you would strengthen our hearts through your word this morning. Thank you for guaranteeing the task of the church, the task that Jesus gave us. We pray for your help this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Here's the reality of our situation. Eight billion people almost live in the world today and 42% of those, four out of 10, will go to sleep tonight never hearing of Jesus. They have no gospel infrastructure, if you'd like, in their own people group, in their own local culture and language. There are no Christians. There are no Bibles or books in their own language. There are no churches to model for them what God's heart and God's ways are like. Now, there are about 500 people in this room this morning. And so if we applied that 42% figure, that would mean close to all the people sitting up in the balcony, balcony this morning would be unreached with the gospel. And the only way that the people in the balcony will hear of the love of Christ is if we go. Cherrydale, our church family has been hungry to go to the nations since our very beginning. This is what you read as you read through our church minutes, which I'm doing. You find as early as 1933 that Cherrydale sends our first missionary couple to Africa, Otto and Gladys Deming. Love those names. And since then, we've sent out 179 missionary households, single Christians and married Christians, to the nations, presently supported by a quarter of our church's budget. But this isn't just a historic commitment to see the gospel go to the nations. Consider the recent history. In the last 15 years, 17 households have left our church family to go serve abroad. They were members of this church. They were sitting in this room. They were worshiping with us. They owned homes in this city. They sent some of them, their children, to these schools. And then God called them to leave this place and go to a new place. And this is the result of God's Spirit speaking clearly through His Word about what God longs for. And that's the worship of all people. And this bubbling vision isn't just sending Cherrydale members across oceans. I've watched you resettle and befriend Afghan refugees. I've watched you teach English to Uyghurs from China. I've watched you pray 
and strategize to befriend international students here studying in D.C. I've watched you welcome the Thai Church of D.C. into our buildings on Sunday mornings. I've watched you welcome men and women and children from unreached people groups into our city and into our very own lives. Now, why am I rehearsing this this morning? I'm rehearsing this for one reason, because many of you are new to our church, and it's important for you to know the legacy that you're stepping into. But also, I'm rehearsing this this morning because this can't just be a historic commitment for our church. This needs to be a future commitment for our church. This passion must mark our future ministry together as a church family. Paul preached last week a great sermon helping us understand the task that Jesus left for the church. And to date, that task is unfinished in our generation. And we have unprecedented access to people groups unreached with the gospel, with no gospel infrastructure among them. We have unprecedented access to these people groups, both here and abroad. Unreached people groups continue to move to our city. And if we reach them, and if some of them go back, what might the Spirit do then? We'll talk about it. And listen, travel and communication technology have made going easier than it was even a generation ago. We can fly instead of sail. We can FaceTime instead of write. Now, I'm not saying that going is easier than it was a generation ago, not even a bit. But we have technological advances at our fingertips that our grandparents didn't have, and will we use them to the advantage of the gospel? Now, we need to pause for a moment because that's what Psalm 96 is after this morning. Psalm 96 is after the motivation for our going. We'll talk about how, but Psalm 96 is concerned with why. What motivates us to go? What motivates Christians to risk relationships, to cross borders, to learn languages in order to proclaim Christ? And what sustains Christians who go, whether it's here or abroad, what sustains our going and our proclaiming and our loving of the nations? It is not guilt. It is not self-glory. It is not a sense of adventure. The proper motivation for a church's missionary effort is worship. We've been humbled by our sin. Oh, and we've been awed by God's mercy. We have been invited to bold and confident worship of our God, and we long for the nations trapped in darkness to know what we have known. That though God stand against our sin, God invites us into His very presence through the work of Christ. And we long for the nations to know what it is to worship our God. Worship the King of all the earth. That's the main idea this morning. In verses 1 through 6, we read of the King's rightful reign. The kingship of God is the thread that holds Psalm 96 together. The king's rightful reign. Look at verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. 
tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Oh, sing to the Lord. We can sing to him, and it is a blessing to him when his people sing to him. This psalm begins with vertical singing. We are lifting up our praises to God. We long for him to hear our voices, and we'll look at why. And we're called to sing a new song. A new song, which could be new in content, a newly written song, or it could be a fresh response to God's grace. But either way, we're called to sing a new song. And who is called to sing a new song? Sing to the Lord, all the earth. The chorus of praise must stretch across the globe. In first century Jerusalem, the worship began there, but it must stretch to the uttermost parts of the earth. The worship of God. Now the command begins vertically. It's praise that's directed up to God, but it continues horizontally. It quickly moves to that in the second part of verse 2. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. We tell of his saving acts, and we tell of his saving act in Christ. We tell of all the ways that God has brought deliverance, and we particularly tell of the deliverance we found in Christ. And we're called to tell it day by day by day. As the sun moves across the earth, stories of God's marvelous saving acts constantly fill the sky. God's people across the earth must proclaim and declare and herald the steadfast, abounding love of God. Where must it take place? Among all the peoples. That's where we want the worship of God to happen. That's the unfinished task. Now, why must this be so? Why must we sing? Why must worship go to all the earth? Look at verses 4 through 6, where the psalmist, probably David, writes, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Literally, they are no things. They are nothings. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. We read four reasons why the singing of the Lord must go to the very ends of the earth. First, the Lord is great. And the praise of the Lord must be proportionately great. How great is our God? That's how great our praise must be. Secondly, the Lord is to be feared. All the gods of the peoples are no things. We should not fear the gods, the, the idols, the values of any culture on the face of the earth because the Lord is great and the Lord is to be feared. Think of the exodus of God's people from Egypt. God set that whole chess game up as a as a game between God's power, his sovereign authority over creation and all the gods of Egypt. Think of Dagon in the temple. Dagon, that Philistine god, the Lord's presence comes into, the temp into Dagon's temple and what happens to the Philistine god? He falls to the ground. 
Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal are calling out for Baal to bring fire down from heaven and light this altar. And no matter what they do, they cannot get the altar to light. And then Elijah prays a simple prayer, and Yahweh acts. Or think of Jesus casting out the demons with a simple voice. And the demons are shuddering, and the demons are begging Jesus, just send us into a herd of pigs. The Lord is to be feared. Third, sing to the Lord because the Lord has made the heavens. The Lord has creative design. He, he made us. We are his creation, and therefore God can determine who we are and what our purpose is, and it is to glorify him. It is to enjoy him. It is to be satisfied in him, and it is to worship him. And finally, we worship the Lord because he is full of splendor. What picture comes into your head when you hear the word splendor? The Lord is full of splendor and majesty full of strength and beauty. God is the only thing in creation who can sustain our awesome wonder. We can gaze at the Lord and we will forever and we will never grow weary. We can listen to the Lord for all eternity and we will never grow tired. We will worship him for all eternity and we will never grow tired. We can gaze, we can listen, we can worship, and only the Lord can sustain that wonder. The king's reign, according to Psalm 96, spans the entire earth, and that provokes bold, courageous singing. He is the rightful king. He is the only king. The so-called gods and values and idols of this world are nothings. They have no power compared to his. They offer no return on investment. They are empty frauds. And that provokes bold singing, singing even when it costs God's people something. But why singing? Why is singing the Bible's go-to response to God's expression and demonstration of mercy? When we're humbled by our sin, and when we're baffled by God's mercy, our hearts squirm and stretch for a response. What do we do with all this emotion, with this knowledge of what God has done? What do we do with it? Singing provides God's people with an avenue to channel and to broadcast how grateful we are for what God has done in Christ. Singing lets us declare before we burst who God is. His marvelous acts, his incredible faithfulness, his astounding love, we long to sing. And when the streams of individual Christian rejoicing joins together with other streams, a local church becomes a river of praise. And when local churches, rivers of praise, join together with other local churches across the earth, we become an ocean of praise to the Lord for all he's done. That's what Psalm 96 is calling us to do. It's a crescendo calling us to worship the rightful king of all the earth. We sing for God to bless his name, and we sing for our neighbors. When we sing genuinely, something happens to the people around us. 
as we think about the words that we're singing, as the Spirit turns those words over in our hearts, our emotions begin to saturate with the truth that we're singing. And when our emotions genuinely are saturated by the truth of God's Word, when our minds and our hearts come together and non-Christians see us, they may think us strange, but they will not think us inauthentic because we know the mercy of God. We've tasted His goodness and we long for the nations to know it. We have an enemy who hates to hear the church sing. We sing anyway. No matter the cost, God's people are bored of Satan's efforts, unimpressed with the gods and the values of this world. Stephen was unimpressed in the first century. He stands before a crowd of Jews holding rocks ready to stone him to death. Stephen has preached a sermon calling on the Jews to repent and trust in Christ the Messiah. And Stephen in those moments looks past the authorities that he can see to an authority that he can see by faith and by a miracle he sees Jesus. When they, the Jewish crowd holding rocks, when they heard these things, that is Stephen's preaching, they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We have brothers and sisters living in cultures, living among people groups that are threatening and intimidating to the gospel. Oh, that they may look past the human authority to the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for them, for there is real authority. There is one who reigns across the entire earth. The gods of this world are no things. God's reign is a universal reign. Therefore, we must sing boldly of the eternal realities that we know are true. Because we long for all the nations to join the song. We long for all peoples to repent and trust Christ just as we have. And so we pray and we sacrifice and we give and we go and we sing so that He is worshipped among all peoples on the earth. The King's rightful reign and now the King's righteous judgments, verses 7 through 13. In the first section of this psalm, in the first stanza of this psalm, which was a song that was sung, we're told to sing, sing, sing. And now in verse 7 and following, we're told to ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Look at verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. All families, all clans, all peoples, all tongues, all tribes, every corner of the earth, ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Since all families of the earth are under his rightful reign, all families of the earth must ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Three things. In particular, we're called to ascribe or to confess or to acknowledge about God. First, His glory. 
God's glory is a word that we often use but don't often define. So just slow down and think, what does glory actually mean? What do we mean when we try to bring glory to God's name? Here's something to consider. You might think of God's glory as His powerful presence, His powerful presence. It exists and sometimes it breaks into creation and we feel it in a special way. Maybe it's similar to when the queen walked into a room or some king or queen, you sense it. They're in the room and the mood has changed just because they're in the room, just because they're present. Something changes in the atmosphere and the feelings of the room. God's glory is royal and majestic. It has gravitas and weightiness to it. The temple was filled with the glory of God and there was a sense of awe. God is here. God has chosen to dwell among us here. Habakkuk 2.14, one of our missionaries mentioned this morning, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Maybe the glory of the ocean will give us a sense of what gravitas glory is meant to evoke in our hearts. Because we serve a God who holds the oceans in His hands. The glory of the Lord. Ascribe to Him glory. And then secondly, ascribe to Him strength. Strength means you can do what you want to do. You're strong enough to execute on your desires. If God wants to create the world, God will do it. If He wants to flood the earth, He'll do it. If God wants to make kings eat grass like an ox, God will do it. If He wants empires to rise and fall, or if He wants the sun to literally move backward in the sky, God will do it. If He wants to kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who are arrogantly and rudely threatening His people, God can do it. God can knock down Jericho's walls with the clapping of hands and the sounding of trumpets. If God wants to send demons out of a man into a herd of pigs, God will do it. If God wants to heal a person with leprosy or paralysis or blindness or fevers, God will do it. If God wants to hush the wind and the waves, He'll do it. If God wants to break His people out of prison, God will do it. If God wants to ransack the grave, defeating sin and death and Satan by raising Jesus back from the dead, God will do it. That's strength. And we ascribe to Him the strength that's due His name. But that's not all. We ascribe to God, we confess, we acknowledge that He is holy. And His holiness is grand. It's magnificent. It's astonishingly beautiful. So much so that when we come to see His holiness, it causes us to tremble. And this word, you can't really get around it. it there's a fear that's part of this word. We see His holiness and we know we are unlike Him. His holiness wraps His throne with splendor. He's not merely glorious and strong. He's also righteous and good and just. He only does right. He can never do anything but what's right. 
And He invites us to come. He calls on us to bring an offering into His sanctuary. He beckons us to come to Him. Though we are broken and tarnished by sin, He invites us in. What staggering mercy that causes us to tremble. We're unsure, but He calls us forward. And then once we've come to worship, He instructs us to turn to the nations. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. The Lord reigns. It may not seem that the Lord is reigning, but he reigns over North and South America. He reigns in the Middle East and Europe. He reigns in Asia and Africa. He reigns from one corner of the earth to another. He reigns in countries that are yawning and bored with the gospel. And he reigns in countries that are completely untouched by the gospel. He reigns because he established the earth and the earth will not move because Jesus upholds it. And because he reigns over all the earth, he will judge the peoples of the earth. And as king, it is right for him to judge. Oh, how sweet and perfect are his judgments. How firm and how right are his verdicts. No bias. This judge is even, upright, certain, unbending, fair, reasonable, impartial, equitable, objective. Not according to our standards, perhaps. God's the creator. God is the standard, but the standard is beautiful. And then, in a great reversal of the groaning creation found in Romans 8. Do you remember Romans 8? The creation itself is groaning, longing to be redeemed. It's groaning because of the weight of human sin that's piled on top of it. And the creation itself longs to be redeemed. How appropriate that we sang, ain't no rock, this morning. Look at verse 11. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Let, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Somehow the creation joins in the worship of God's people. I say somehow because creation does not bear God's image in the way that we bear God's image. Creation lacks personhood in the way that we have personhood, but somehow creation brings God glory. Creation joins the choir of God's people and sings the glory of God. The trees say there is a creator. The sea creatures announce God lives. The trees declare God's beauty. It's a harmony of general revelation declaring God exists 
God is real. God lives. God is beautiful. God creates. It's a, it's a chorus, a harmony of general revelation that adds to the texture of God's people who are singing the melody, the specific revelation that God in Christ has come near, that God in Christ has forgiven sins, that God in Christ invites us into fellowship with him. The people of God sing specifically of God's revelation while the creation around us sings boldly and generally of who God is. And this Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. He'll judge the peoples of the world in faithfulness. He will separate those who are His from those who are not His, like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And Jesus will say on that day when He returns in the future, He'll say to those who believe, who are His, Enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he will also say to those who reject him, Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus' judgments will include punishment of those who reject him and deliverance for all who believe. And we long for the nations to worship with us. And his judgments will be right. Now, the fact that the king will come and that his judgments will be righteous, this should generate urgency. The fact that God reigns should create boldness in our worship. The fact that the king is coming to judge the living and the dead should generate urgency. So come and worship the Lord today. The need for you to come is urgent because the reality of judgment is certain. So come this morning and join the throng of singing of his salvation from day to day. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Come and join the chorus that's singing of his amazing, mighty, saving acts. It only requires you to be humbled by your sin and to trust Christ in your place. So won't you come now to the one who loved you, the one who made you, the one who loves you still. And Cherrydale family, the call to urgency is for us as well. It's for those of us who belong to Christ as well. Eight billion people in the world, 3.3 billion people unreached with the gospel, no gospel infrastructure in their people group. 42% of the world's population who cannot hear the church sing. They may see creation sing generally about God's existence and his creative action. They cannot hear the church sing specifically of Christ. And for that reason, we must go. You can see on this map where most of this 42% live. So what can we do? We're at that point in every missions conference sermon where we ask the question, what can we do? And I'm giving you the same three application points that I think I've given you the last three years. But I'm calling on you to listen carefully for the sake of worship. First, pray. Forty people gathered last Wednesday night to pray for seven missionaries. And what struck me during that prayer time was how vital our prayers are. 
Our prayers are literally fuel that keep workers in the field. Our prayers deliver hope to the discouraged heart of a missionary. Our prayers provide fear or provide courage where a missionary is struggling with fear. Our prayers ensure power to the work that's happening among the nations. Now, for what do we pray? We pray for boldness and endurance. We pray for the Spirit to work through the Word. We pray for new Christians. We pray for holiness and focus. We pray for people dead in sins to come alive. We pray for churches to be planted. And we pray that Jesus would beat Satan back into a headlong retreat from the grip he has in certain parts of the world. And tell our missionaries how you're praying. Don't leave them lonely in the field. They've given up enough. Hold them close and communicate often. And pray for our work in this city. Pray for workers to enter the fields here. Pray for open doors to proclaim Christ. Pray for Christians to move into neighborhoods filled with unreached people groups. We'll talk about it in a minute. Pray for the Holy Spirit to move and pray for Christians to lean in, to love, and to sing of the goodness of God. Second, give. Here's my specific challenge. I'm calling on all of us to open up our budgets this week. And if we don't have a budget, this is the time to make a budget. Pray about your budget. Lay it open before the Lord and ask Him to reveal alterations or changes that you might need to make. Are you giving what you should be to this local church if you're a member here? Are you allowing us to resource our workers well? Are you allowing us to lean into northern India on the map behind you to try to strengthen the churches that are held captive, helping us to translate resources and to plant churches and to train pastors? That's what your giving allows us to do and many more things. But beyond your local church, where else should you give? Should you give up Netflix and support a missionary instead? Should you forego that week of vacation and instead go visit that missionary that's discouraged? And you know they're discouraged because you're reading their letters month after month. We don't want to let our missionaries get distracted by financial need. We want them spending every minute they have Praying, building relationships, sharing the gospel, learning the language, learning the culture, planting churches. Not spinning their wheels trying to meet financial needs. And I promise you that when we stand in God's presence, we won't regret the financial investments we've made in getting the gospel into the hearts and mouths of people who will join us in praising Him. Third, go. The urgency of the King's return to judge the world in righteousness animates us. I feel the tugs of distraction. I feel it every day when I get up. The responsibilities and the pressures, the pleasures and the pain of living in this world. I get the distraction. And they all conspire against us to distract us from what God is doing. So let's recommit to focus, urgent focus, singing the gospel song while we coach soccer, while we work, while we go about our Saturdays, while we talk in the commons after church. And I'm praying that by the end of this calendar year, at least one member from our church expresses a desire to cross an ocean, to learn a language, and to join the work that God is doing. We must keep ourselves stretching. 
Because though there are unreached people groups in our midst, and we'll talk about them in a second, the gospel need is far greater, abundantly greater, and we will not meet that need without urgently working to go, go abroad. But I'm also praying that by the end of this calendar year, there is an army of you, we're almost done, that act on the burden of unreached people groups here. Did you know 30,000 Farsi-speaking Iranians are concentrated in Tyson's Corner? 33,000 Afghans are concentrated in Springfield, Virginia. And just this week, I learned that 12,000 Bangladeshis are concentrated five minutes away from us in Yorktown. Five minutes. They have a mosque in South Arlington. They have multiple restaurants and grocery stores. And look at Bangladesh standing alongside India. It's extremely unreached with the gospel, and God has brought Bangladeshis to our community. Or take Marymount. Alex Louisus discovered this week that Marymount has a higher percentage of international students than any other university in the DMV. The question is, what are we going to do about this? The question is, what does urgency look like? In light of our desire to see Christ worshipped, what do we do? Who of you stands up to organize efforts? How do we love them? How do we pray for them? How do we share the gospel with them? How do we invite them to sing with us of what God has done in Christ? Urgently pray, give, and go. What motivates Christians to go? What sustains our going? The Lord is king of all the earth. Jesus died to save a people scattered among all the nations. And Jesus will accomplish this task because Jesus left his very strong helper to empower the church to finish the task. And in Revelation 5, there's a new song that's sung in the future when this task is then complete. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them together a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Lord Jesus, we are grateful this morning for your desire for the nation's worship. You've purchased it through your death and resurrection. You sent your spirit to help us finish the task. And so we pray for boldness. We pray for urgency. We pray that our motivation would remain the worship of all nations, of our great God. Amen.